We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 11th, 2007. And today we're going to be kind of a continuation from last week, but on a little bit different course. The title of today's message would be The Major Cause of Israel's Afflictions, The Jews and the Gentiles from Jesus Christ to Revelation. So we're going to be taking an in-depth look at this subject that a lot of uh, ministries really don't want to touch. And it, I'm not presenting this because I think I'm better. It's just a fa matter of fact, there's a lot of ministries out there that won't get into this issue whatsoever in regard to the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus Christ. Um, what we want to do is look at this from a biblical standpoint. Throwing out any preconceived notions you might have. Let's see what the Bible says today about this rather complex subject, and this is going to take me a while to get through. We're going to be going through a ton of scriptures. We're also going to be relating this a lot to John Hagee, uh, because really this is, I've been planning on doing this teaching for a long time, but with this current thing with John Hagee coming out, denying Jesus Christ as, as the Messiah, and saying he never came to be the Messiah, and all these other things, we're going to go over that again briefly, if, if you didn't hear part one and two. I really think that this needs to be addressed. Uh, and we need to do it thoroughly. So this is a teaching that if this comes up in your everyday, uh, if you're talking to somebody who's a Christian and they're, they're you know, off in left field about a particular topic, this is a teaching you could refer them to that they could listen to, hopefully uh, get them uh, some biblical knowledge here on this particular subject. The article that I'm going to be reading some excerpts from uh, is called The Major Cause of Israel's Afflictions by Professor Johan Malin of the University of North in South Africa. And um, we're just going to be reading some excerpts. A lot of this I had already done as well as far as the Bible. So I'm kind of, this took me a long time to put together because we're going to be going through so many scriptures to affirm what we're saying here. But the major theme of this um, particular teaching would start out the major cause of Israel's perpetual troubles and afflictions is not external but internal the nation's continued rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah now much as evangelical Bible believing Christians should bless Israel and support them by condemning the evil campaigns of slandering, disowning, and fighting them, we should also take brave measures to fulfill our calling by reintroducing Israel's rejected Messiah to them. If we neglect this all-important commission, all other efforts to bless and uphold them would be of very little effect. So if you think about it, and I've, I've said this before, the greatest blessing you could ever bestow on anyone, as far as in prayer, would be that their souls be saved. I mean, really, a thousand years ago from now, that's all that's really going to matter. Did they get saved or if they didn't? I understand there's rewards and things of that nature, but I'm, I mean, the big gigantic issues are heaven and hell. So, when we talk about blessing Israel and these types of things, I think that's very important to keep that in mind. Now, before we go any further, what I want to do is reiterate some of the quotes that John Hagee has said. Um, there's a little, I don't know, it's about a minute long, the whole thing, where he gives a promo for his new book. It's called In Defense of Israel. And in that promo, I wrote down exactly what he said in regard to this book. Now, 
there's a lot of quotes that I can also send you from the book in regard to this. But in defense of Israel, John Hagee, now you can go and watch this little one-minute uh, e-video up on Google. You can email me, and my email address is on the, uh, on the website, the Sermons Audio website. And um, you can email me, I'll send it to you, if you don't have it. Or you can do a keyword search up on Google Video or YouTube. You can watch it for yourself. I mean, he's saying this stuff that's coming out of his mouth. He's got a whole book that's that's then reiterating this fact, these facts further. They're false facts, but he's reiterating it. But in this short little promo, he says, number one, this book in defense of Israel will expose the sins of the fathers and the vicious abuse of the Jewish people. Okay, so that's something to bear in mind. They're going to expose it. Now, when, when, you, when you talk about the sins of the father, you almost... You get the impression reading this, it's almost the sins of the Christian forefathers. And that's the heavy impression you get. It's this immediate thing of condemnation of the Christians. Okay? And I mean, what he's talking about here, by saying the fathers, we're going way, way, way back to. This isn't just modern day. And then this vicious abuse of the Jewish people. Then number two, this book will scripturally prove that the Jews, as a people, did not reject Jesus as Messiah. Now, this is what we're really going to be doing an in-depth biblical study on today. Let's really see what's the case here. What does the Bible say? Let's get away from my opinion. Let's get away from John Hagee's opinion. Let's just see what the Bible says about this. Let God be true and every man a liar, as the Bible says. Point three of this book. This book will also prove that Jesus Christ did not come to earth to be the Messiah. Now, this is supposedly a man who says he's born again been preaching for, I don't know how many years, at least 20, 30, 40, I don't know how many years, has a huge, gigantic church in San Antonio, Texas. And he is saying, right now, coming out of his own mouth, that Jesus Christ did not come to earth to be the Messiah, which is the Christ. That's another word for Messiah, the Christ. So, evidently, Jesus was just Jesus. He wasn't really Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I couldn't believe it. When I was listening to this, I about fell over. I thought, how flagrant can you get? You know, and the Bible also says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, I'll tell you what, you can't get much more double-minded than this. To turn around and, and I mean, a lot of people have heard Hagee preach, and I, I've heard him preach before too, and in times past, I don't watch him anymore, but I'm talking maybe, I don't know how many years ago. And it seemed like, for the most part, his message seemed to be biblically sound. I'm not saying I was at the knowledge base I am now when I listen to him either, but it, you know, seemed as though you could actually listen to one of his programs and actually get saved. Evidently, that's not the case anymore. The fourth point of this book, and remember, this is out of his own mouth. You can go up and watch it. He's going to prove, through this book, he's going to pr prove that there was conspiracy between the high priest, Herod, and the Romans to execute Jesus Christ. Fifth point, since Jesus refused by word, now this is a quote, I, I made, wanted to make sure I get this as a quote, this is, came out of John Hagee's mouth, quote, since Jesus refused by word and deed to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? End of quote. So evidently, Jesus, by word and deed, he refused to be the Messiah, and so then how could the Jews be blamed for ever rejecting him? Because it was never offered to him. That's what John Hagee's saying. This man has got to be out of his mind. 
or just a flat-out devil. And I think it's the latter. I'm not going to give him that he's out of his mind. Okay? He knows better. Okay? The Bible says, To whom much is given, much is required. Do you realize the, the, the position he's putting himself at? I, I, I seriously doubt his salvation at this point, obviously. But, even so, I believe there's going to be different degrees of punishment in hell. Possibly that will transfer over into the lake of fire. I don't know how that's all going to work. That's all bad. But I, I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes, and I'm not saying that because I think I'm perfect or anything, but when you come out and you start doing this, there's a Bible verse that applies specifically to wolves and sheep's clothing of this nature. And here it is. 1 John 2, 21-24. through 24. Or actually, we're just going to read through 23. 1 John 2, 21 reads, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? Okay, this is the definition of a liar in, in the New Testament. Who is a liar? But he that denieth Jesus is the Christ. That also could be... You could also use the word Messiah as interchangeable there. I'm not trying to change the King James Bible, but I'm just saying Christ and Messiah are essentially the same thing. So who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah. Well, isn't that what John Hagee just did? Out of his own mouth? By his own writings? You should read some of these quotes out of this book. And then it says, goes on to say, He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father... And the Son. Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. See, you can't have one without the other. So it says, Whoso denieth the Son, which he's done, by saying Jesus didn't come to earth to be Messiah, the same hath not the Father. He doesn't have the Father or the Son. How can you be saved? Do you think the Holy Spirit is leading him to this conclusion? <laughs> no. He is of his Father the devil, and of his works he will do. Well, I just don't believe that. He's he's done so much good and he's preached. He's just a little bit off base on this. No, no, I'm not going to give him that much credit. I'm not. I, I don't give these gigantic televangelists, 501c3 corporate ministries that are yoked up with the government, that don't take any kind of stand on the King James Bible, that use enticing words and doctrines of devils, and seducing spirits to do their work. I don't give them that kind of credit. I just don't. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.1, that says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Now, he's doing all of this. He's giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, He's speaking lies in hypocrisy. He's coming out and acting like he's the big defender of all the Jewish race. Okay? And the Jews are the very ones that rejected Jesus Christ. We're going to prove that totally and emphatically. And this is not anti-Semitic sermon. This is a Bible sermon. I'm not against the Jews. I'm not telling you to, um, you know, to go against them and, or these types of things. But what we want to do is, let's see what the Bible says. Okay? Because we have to balance with this subject. And this is a subject that most people, many, many ministries, don't have balance on. They go one way or another. 
they either totally condemn the Jews and say they're Satan, all Satan's seed and this type of thing, or they'll basically say all oh, the Jews can do no wrong, they get a, get a jail card free pass, they believe in this dual covenant theology, which is also like this ethnic salvation, we're going to talk about that. And that's carrying it too far to the other extreme. Let's have some balance here with this subject. So, in verse 23 it says, Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Well, Hagee's denying the, the Son, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you also deny the Father. It's a package deal. It's not like Burger King religion, where you can have it now and have it your way. Which is what most people want in the modern day, particularly America. A little bro cream religion, a little dabble do ya. So anyway, if we go further with this, during the first century, Jesus offered himself as Messiah to Israel. Had they accepted him, they would have had peace with God and with man. The direct consequence of rejecting him was the forfeiting of God's blessings, which included a peaceful existence in their God-given land and in their capital city, Jerusalem. From the position as a surrendered and obedient people of God, they would have evangelized the world. However, Israel's leaders were spiritually blinded and brought indescribable hardships upon themselves and their followers by rejecting the Prince of Peace. It would certainly be unreasonable to ascribe the first century wars of conquest by the Roman Empire, in which more than a million Jews died, and also the subsequent dispersion of Israel, only to the evil dispositions of the power-hungry and apostate Romans. Okay, that's a good point. The thing I like about this particular uh, article that we're reading some excerpts from, um, is he makes some pretty insightful statements. Some things that, that I hadn't even really thought of, and uh, it was good that he brought them out. Then he goes on to say, what then was the root cause of all bloodshed and immense, what, what then was the root cause and bloodshed of all this immense suffering? Jesus said to Jerusalem, the core of the unbelieving Jewish nation, and let's read what he said in Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37, and then we're going to be turning to Zechariah 13, verse 8. But first is Matthew 23, verse 37. Okay, so Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39, reads, Now this is Jesus Christ talking, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them, which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And we're going to take a look at, okay, when is that going to happen? But, you know, what does John Hagee do with a verse like this? There's so many verses in the Bible. Oh, well, this is anti-Semitic. No, it's not. It's the Bible. This is what Jesus Christ said. He was, you know, he came to his own and his own received him not. You can't accuse Jesus Christ of being anti-Semitic. But, you know, some would even say that, you know, well, that's, that's just not nice. Well, I'm really sorry. So if we look at this verse, it's, you know, let's see what, what Jesus Christ is saying. He's basically saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is an indictment, particularly, I believe, against the, uh, 
No, not only the people, but primarily, most likely, you know, the the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these types of things. You know, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. So, you know, he's not, Jesus Christ isn't footing the blame off anyone else other than Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem in particular. And most likely, like we said, the, the, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, if we go a little bit further, and we go over to Zechariah 13, verse 8. Zechariah 13, verse 8. Now, again, this is the future of the Jewish nations. Now, this is another verse I guarantee you John Hagee probably never talks about. Zechariah 13, verse 8. And we talked about this last week. And it shall come to pass, that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off. Now, this is in regard to the Jews in Israel. Two parts therein shall be cut off and die. But the third shall be left therein. This is the future of the Jewish nation during the tribulation. Two thirds are going to die. Oh, now that's really anti-Semitic. That's Bible. I'm sorry. And I will bring the third part through the fire. And I will refine them as silver is refined. And will try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name, I will hear them, I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. That's going to be the ultimate end of a third part of the true Jews in Israel. That's the Bible. Okay? He's going to try them, he's going to bring them through the fire, he's going to refine them. Okay? Now, somebody, some may say, and I said this last week, oh, well, that's cool, you can't say two-thirds are going to die. Number one, the Bible's saying it. And number two, if you think about it, 33% of the Jews getting saved is a much, going to be a much, much higher percentage than the average population like of other nations. Because the Bible says, Narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and few there be that find it. Right now on earth, who knows how many people are actually getting really saved out of, let's say, 100? 2 to 3% are really true born-again Christians? Are they exemplifying the fruits of the Spirit? Have they, have they you know, did their... When they got saved, was there a change in their life? In regard to holiness, was there conviction of sin that wasn't there before? Was there fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance? Were these types of things manifested? Was there the chastening of the Lord on that person once they got saved? Because the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he also chasteneth. And you, if you be without chastisement, you're bastards. These are earmarks of a Christian. Okay, and we could do a whole other sermon on that. Actually, I probably should. Um, hopefully I will sometime in the near future here. But these are things to look for. 33% of a population actually getting saved, you know, that's pretty good. So, some may say, well, this is too harsh. Well, number one, God's ways are not our ways. It's not our rule book. It's His. Okay, and that's why I'm trying to look at Scripture here today and see what it says. And hopefully stay away from my opinion included. So now, let's go to Luke 19, verse 41. Luke... 19, verse 41. We're just really going to be going through a lot of scripture. This is a really fascinating study, though. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he was come over near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. And this is Jesus Christ again, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Now, remember, the Bible says blindness in part, in part, has happened to the Jews 
until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. They are blinded. Okay, and they have been blinded. Ever since this this uh, rejection, well, they were blinded before that too, but particularly since the rejection of Jesus Christ. But it says, But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench round about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee on every side. And shall lay even thee with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now this is another proclamation of judgment by Jesus Christ, basically on Israel. Um, and in particular, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem that happened there shortly thereafter. So, you know, this doesn't seem... This is anti-Semitic, that verse, wasn't it? Wasn't that just anti-Semitic? Well, Jesus Christ said it. Okay? He wasn't happy that the Jews were rejecting him. And he acknowledges that their eyes were blinded. Okay? Now, if we go to Luke 21, if we flip over a couple pages, Luke 21, verse 20. Okay, so Doug just pointed out something that I want to go back and read also before we do the, uh, the uh, verse in Luke. Um... Again, back in Matthew 23, verse 33, 23, verse 33, Jesus Christ says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. This is what Jesus' proclamation was, particularly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and these types of things. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, and the blood of righteous Abel, or no, from the blood of righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachus, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So, it doesn't sound like Jesus Christ was real happy with the Jews. But the way John Hagee would present this, you know, all the Jews were just, you know, they were, uh, how did he put it here? The, the, we'll, we're going to expose, in, the, in this book he has, he says, we're going to expose the sins of the fathers and the vicious abuse of the Jewish people. Well, evidently, he must have to include Jesus Christ in that vicious abuse of the Jewish people, because Jesus Christ spoke more harshly to, to the, particularly the high priests and these types of guys, than anyone else. So, you know, there's so many verses that I'm that John Hagee would have to blatantly ignore in order to come out with a book like this. What he'll do is he will lift verses totally out of context in order to justify his position and have to ignore a much larger part of Scripture in order to have a book like this. But again, he wants his, evidently, this Burger King religion and this is how cults get started, especially if the cults have any kind of supposed biblical base to them. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they take a lot of verses out of context in the Bible. The Bible says the Word of God is of no private interpretation. These types of things. So, you know, um, uh, this is something that we've got to be really careful about. So let's go a little bit further now, and we go to Luke... Uh, I believe it was Luke 20, Luke, Luke uh, 21, verse 20. 
21, verse 20. And Jesus Christ speaking here again. Now these are all straight from Jesus Christ. So this, I think, even adds more validity to this argument that we're trying to present here today. Verse 20, And when she... And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them out which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For all these for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Most likely this is the start of the truly the start of Jacob's trouble. Okay? The start of the other three and a half years, the second part of the three and a half year tribulation of, of that. Okay, it's so a seven year tribulation. This is the second part we're in reference to here. Verse 23, But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. Who is this people? The Jews. Okay? And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down unto the Gentiles. And again, that makes reference to Jerusalem uh, in verse 20 and in verse 24. Trodden down the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay, and essentially, um, that is going to take place, you know, at the, at the end of the tribulation. The times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Okay, and it's, a, and it's an interesting side note. The times of the Gentiles, we said when it's going to end, but when it actually started began uh, uh, with the captivity of Judah under Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 1 through 21. Okay, that's when the times of the Gentiles pretty much started. Uh, since that time, Jerusalem has been under Gentile rule. Okay, so just an interesting side note there, more than anything. So let's go a little bit further here. And, let's see here. So, from these scriptures that we've just read, it's obvious that Israel's rejection of their Messiah accounts for their bitter experiences. Okay? It's cause and effect. You reap what you sow. Okay? Uh, that's just the way it is. And that's biblical. But this is contrary, the, these, these, what we just read is contrary to John Hagee's previous unbiblical assertions. Isn't this is like the exact opposite? What John Hagee's doing is preaching another gospel. And I mean, we're going we're to look at this a little bit further. But the Bible says that anyone that would come preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. And then it goes on to say, let him be accursed again. So, that's like the, the worst thing that you could possibly do. Come as a Christian, yet preach another gospel. Come as a wolves in sheep's clothing. Or a hireling. Appearing as a minister of righteousness. But Satan could do the same thing. This is what we're dealing with here. And it's very subtle. And he's very convincing. You know, because he speaks with such great authority. And, you know, he's up there and he's got this big church. And people, you know, people don't read their Bible for the most part. And they fall under his spell. And I mean that literally. Oh, now you're really getting off in left field. No, I mean that literally. I mean, I really believe these big, gigantic television ministries. Show me where, 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 where there was any type of ministry like that in the New Testament. 
where there were, you know, you know, Paul or any of the apostles, were, were they operating with these gigantic budgets and, and erecting these gigantic buildings and yoking themselves up with the government and going then to the government in order to get a license to preach? That's another thing. Going to the 501c3 seminaries in order in order to get their you know in order to get their doctorate. Most of the time, what is happening to them is they're being ruined in these. Now, I'm not saying all, but I'm saying most of the time they get ruined in the cemeteries. I mean, seminaries. Sorry. And basically, that's what's happening. You can't yoke yourself up with all that junk and expect it not to affect you. The Bible says a little leaven, which is always the type of sin, leaven the whole lump. It's like yeast. Put a little bit of uh, yeast, you know, and, and it'll make the dough rise and it gets all through it. It's what's happened to the church. It's been leavened. And the Bible says if the head be sick, then the whole body is sick. And, and, the, and the preacher, or the minister, or whatever you want to call him, is the head of a respective church. And then Jesus Christ is supposed to be his head. Problem is, is they're not the head of the church. The government is the head of the church because of this 501c3 status they've, they've chosen to take. So the government is actually the head of the church. Because you have to abide by the 501c3 and you get your tax exempt status revoked. Well, who's the head? Anything that has two heads is a monster. Can't have Jesus Christ, and and you you can't have bow the knee to Baal and Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. Okay, so that's a whole other study. And if you you can email me, I have a teaching we've done called Satan's Master Plan to Destroy the Church. I'll email it to you in word format. It's also up on the internet uh, on the sermons audio sites, and that's a huge foundational thing. But I believe when you start yoking yourself up with these types of things that I just mentioned, how can it not affect you spiritually? How can it not affect that church from a spiritual level? The problem is, is you can't see the spirits. So you don't know it's happening unless you're really discerning. Or unless you observe the obvious. But most people don't want to do that. It's affecting and permeating the church. And the church is full of devils and demons, but we can't see them. And it's an abomination in the sight of God. But you know what? The Bible clearly predicted it was going to happen. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 Already read to you 1 Timothy 4.1 Said in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That verse. There's all these verses that predict this would happen. That there was going to be a falling away according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then it said that God would send the strong delusion, that they would believe a lie, that they might all be damned, who received not the love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, read that verse, that's totally in reference to the end times. You could go on and on with this. So, I don't let this get me down. The Bible clearly predicted it was going to happen, so don't let it get you down. What What we should be doing though is praying about it. I pray these devils be exposed. Oh, well, why would you do that? Well, because if they don't get exposed, what hope is there for their congregation? They're going to hell just along with their pastor most of the time. They're choosing to follow a man rather than the word of God. They probably don't even have the right Bible. They don't have a King James Bible. They've never been taught that. And that's the foundation of our faith. And the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? <laughs> well, the foundation's been corrupted. So that that's a you know that in the in this whole church and corporation issue I believe are, are 
huge. I, th- I think a lot of the problems we face in modern day churches stem from those two issues. And that's why if I have a new Christian email me, I'll typically email them my two attachments on the King James issue and on Satan's master plan to destroy the church. Because I think that that's something they need to be educated about first in regard to understanding what's going on. Why is this leaven permeated uh, the churches? So if we go further with this, um, during times... Oh, let's just read this again. From the scriptures, it's obvious that Israel's rejection of their Messiah accounts for their bitter experiences. much more than the actions of their ill-disposed enemies. During times when they were spiritually strong, God protected them. Um, King Solomon basically said, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Okay? That's in Proverbs 16, verse 7. The spiritual waywardness of of Israel also lies at the root of their continued suffering during the the long years of despair. Diasporia. Now, that word diasporia, if you see that, the definition of that is the dispersion of the Jews outside of Israel from the 6th century BC when they were exiled to Babylonia until the present time. Okay, and we, that's essentially when um, the times of the Gentiles started too. So that's when you hear the word diasporia. Did I say that right? Diasporia? Diaspora. Okay. So again, that's the. Who knows? The dispersion of the Jews outside of Israel from the 6th century B.C. when they were exiled to Babylonia until the present time. Okay, so that's where, you know, the Jews have kind of been. Now, they are back in their homeland, a lot of them. We're going to look at that also. Now, if we go next to Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Deuteronomy, verse 28. I'm sorry, chapter 28, verse 64. I'm getting there myself here. 28, 64. Let's start at verse 63. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over to destroy you. Oh my, what does John Hagee do with this verse? Oh boy, these verses are all throughout the Old Testament, and a lot of them, very similar ones are in the New Testament, we've already read. Straight from Jesus Christ's mouth. Okay? So, yeah. Okay, so. Uh, continuing in verse 63. So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you. You hear that? The Bible says here about essentially his own people that the Lord will rejoice over them to destroy them. Oh, that's not politically. That's anti-Semitic. Well, you know, it's the Bible. I'm sorry. What I'm trying to do is lay a foundation here for this teaching. And then it says, And to bring you to naught... And ye shall be plucked from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. Well, that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar took, you know, captivity and took the Jews to Babylon. And these types of things, they, they, they were plucked off the land. Verse 64, And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people. See, Bible predicted this was going to happen. Before it even happened. 
from the one end of the earth even unto the other. Isn't that what's happened with the Jews? And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. You know, how, how crazy is that? To actually bow down to an idol. As the Bible says, they have eyes and they cannot see, they have mouths but they cannot speak, they have ears but they cannot hear. It's crazy! But that's what, um, that's part of, of, of God's judgment in regard to this. And then verse 65, And among these nations shall thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. Haven't the Jews been persecuted totally? I mean, starting back then, you know, worsening most likely after they rejected Jesus Christ, as, as corporately as a nation. Now, obviously, the apostles went out and were saved born-again believers. That's why the Bible says, blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. Okay, They're not all blinded. There are some Jews that are, and, and thank God, because those were the Jews that initially went forth. 3,000 were saved at Pentecost. These types of things. So praise the Lord for that. Okay, but this is, this is um, we're talking about the majority here. And then verse 66, And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God, would God it even? Would God it were even? Okay. In other words, I, I pray to God. They're, they're basically praying. It's in the morning they're praying, Oh, I wish it was the evening. Okay. And at even thou shalt say, Would God it were morning? For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. You know, it's funny. I had watched a a documentary at one point on World War II. And I remember this guy in here saying that it was so bad where they were at. I don't know where they were at, whether it was in, um, they were fighting Japan, or I think it was Japan. Or, or I don't know if it was Germany. But anyway, he was, he was saying, reminding me of this verse. He said, it was so incredibly horrific. He said that when we were fighting in the morning, I was praying for darkness. And when it was dark, I was praying for light. He said. He said it never ended. It would be like it would be like almost like a, uh, like a. I'm not gonna like a hell on earth, but obviously not as bad. You know, where no matter what you do, you can't escape um, this fear that you're under. And then it says in verse 68, and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again, and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bonds. For bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Notice it says the Lord shall bring you into Egypt. See, when we're disobedient to the Lord, and things like this would befall us, many times it's the Lord's doing. Because we've asked for this judgment, essentially. It's like you're asking for it. Okay? So, this is what's happened uh, to the Jews historically. So, why did Israel as a nation, historically, have to face such a long history of suffering? Because they rejected God, His laws, His prophets, and in the fullness of time, His Son. They rejected everything. When the Roman governor Pilate tried to acquit Jesus, the Jews insisted on His crucifixion. Now, we're going to go to um, this part of the study. And again, I would, I would preface this by saying... What does John Hagee do with these verses? 
so much of this is in either straight out of Jesus Christ's mouth or in absolute regard to Jesus Christ. And again, what does he do with these verses? He ignores them. That's what he does. So, let's go to Matthew. My teaching is like so... (laughs) I've got all these things attached to this teaching because I had to attach so many Bible verses to this. So, let's see here. Okay, so Matthew 27, verse 1. Matthew 27, verse 1. This is a fascinating teaching. Uh, actually, really, the whole thing. Uh, just comparing scripture with scripture. Not, not that I, you know, want to say I'm great or whatever. I'm just saying it's a, it's a fascinating look at scripture. Is is what we're looking at here. So Matthew twenty seven verse one. Now, in the subtitle of this chapter would be the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus to Pilate. Okay, uh, verse one. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Well, what does John Hagee do with that verse? This is all throughout the New Testament. The chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, if you just stop there, you could say, well, it was only the scribes and the Pharisees and the guys in hype. No, well, let's read further. Okay? Verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. Okay, now, a lot of people blame Pilate for everything. Okay? And we're going to see, we're going to look at that in depth. Now, let's go to verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, this is Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Now this is when Jesus was accused of the chief priests and the elders. Then Pilate said unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? So Pilate's almost like trying to get Jesus to defend himself here. Don't you hear all the stuff these guys are saying against you? Verse 14. And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. So, you know... Pontius Pilate's sitting back and thinking, man, here, they're saying all this stuff about him, and, and he's not even opening his mouth, and he's marveling at this whole process that's taking place here. Okay, so then verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. Okay, now, this could be considered Pilate's offer. Okay, this part of the of the of the uh, Bible verses. Verse 16, And they had a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas was a criminal being held for murder and, and, and sedition. Okay? That was what was going on there. Wherefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. Now remember, He's called Christ, which is also the Messiah, which is essentially the thing John Hagee's denying. And again, he'd have to ignore this whole portion of scripture in order to justify uh, the writings in this book and all the blasphemous words that have been coming out of his mouth as of recently. And even prior to that. Okay, then verse 18. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. See, Pilate had already figured this out. He already figured out that, that the chief priests and the scribes, these people that had brought him before him, why, what was the real reason for this envy? Envy. 
Pilate had enough discernment to figure this out. Now, I'm not trying to elevate Pilate and say he was a wonderful person or anything, but I'm saying that, that in the grand scheme of things, I, I believe he was better than these Jews that were, that were um, trying to kill the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, you know, the, the, the perfect Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth, Jesus Christ. So, if we go further, envy is a very dangerous sin, as evidenced by Isaiah 14. Now, we're going to take a little um, rabbit trail here, but I think we need to stop right there and understand that the reason they did all this to Jesus Christ, what was the core reason? What was the core reason they crucified the King of Glory? Envy. Well, I don't know, envy doesn't sound too bad. I mean, uh, it doesn't sound too dangerous. Envy is very dangerous. And let's, let's look at this further. Isaiah 14, speaking of Lucifer's fall. For thou said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the sides of the north. This is, this is what Satan said in his heart in regard to himself. He says, I will ascend it. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted his throne to be above God's throne. I will sit upon the Mount of Congregation in the sides of the Lord. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. See, it wasn't good enough for Satan, who the Bible describes as the anointed cherub that covereth. Well, that wasn't good enough for him. He was probably the highest ranking of angelic being in heaven, most likely. Okay, I mean, I can't be totally dogmatic, but I think that was probably the case. But that wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. He wanted more. Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. That was what the pronouncement of judgment on Satan. So how did Satan get to this point? Okay, how did, how did this happen? Well, let's go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. And again, let's just reiterate, the Bible says that um, it's talking about Satan. Son of man, uh, take up thy lamentation upon the king of Tyre, say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, I don't know of, I don't know of any earthly king that you could say, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Perfect in beauty? Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering. What, what earthly king had this happening? Okay? So understand, we're in, we're in reference to Lucifer here. Satan. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. He actually had, most likely, some type of musical instrument built into his being. Okay? This is one of the reasons why Satan worked so much through music. Particularly rock music in today's day and age. And why, when you listen to that music, it's basically like you're putting yourself under a spell. Okay? And I know because I was one of the worst. I used to listen to all that junk. Okay? And, um, so I'm not over here 
pronouncing judgment on everybody, but I'm saying that, that there's no such thing as Christian rock, and I've done whole other studies on this as well. You can look it up on my website, uh, the uh, sermons we've done on Christian rock. There's no such thing. So, then it says in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Remember I just said that term? Well, this is where we get it from. Verse 14, Ezekiel 28. And I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I imagine we will when we get up to heaven. The stones of fire? I don't know. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. And then the first thing it says... By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And now sit. Well, doesn't the Bible say the love of money is the root of all evil? Well, it says here, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Well, it said that thou hadst been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy like covering. Okay? There was some type of, of um, evidently, on earth... at the Garden of Eden, there was some type of, of, of um, thing going on here where it says, By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. This is part of the reason that Satan fell. And it had to do with the love of money. Because it says the first thing, it says, Till iniquity is found, and by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now, Satan is not an angel. He is a cherub. He's not a seraphim. He's a cherub. Okay? The cherub is described in the Bible in different places. He has four faces. I believe one of an ox, one of a man, one of an eagle, and one of a lion, I believe. So it says that that's, you know, that's his judgment here. Then it says in verse 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. See, that's why it's real, you know, um, like Absalom in the Bible. He was, you know, he was unbelievably good looking evidently, you know, um... They said he didn't have a blemish from top to bottom, David's son. But look what happened to him. He got proud. People that are incredibly beautiful physically, the thing that they have to really super watch out for is not letting pride fill their heart. Because it's so easy. Okay? Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before things that they may behold thee. So, the two main reasons that said Satan fell is because of his merchandise, and the multitude of merchandise made him to sin, and then also, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. What did all of this cause, though, in him? These two things, where sin took root, it ultimately caused him to envy God, and want to usurp God, in Isaiah 14. Okay, so that was, the, that was the byproduct of the sin, because all sin has fruit. And the fruit of this sin, in Satan's sin... So if you think about it, the first sin of the Bible, because this took place before... I believe this took place before Adam and Eve were even created. Because the serpent appeared in the garden. You know, and Adam and Eve had been created. 
this most likely happened prior to Adam and Eve being created. That's hard to be dogmatic because you don't know exactly if this happened while after they were created, two days or a month. Who knows? Okay, but I'm just I'm just speaking in generalities here. What happens is these two sins in Satan's heart caused him to envy the Most High God and want him to be like the Most High. His ability to think logically and apply wisdom was then corrupted. This is what happened. I mean, was he thinking straight at this point? He's thinking he's going to usurp God? He's got to be out of his mind. I don't care if he, how powerful he thinks he is. He wasn't thinking logically anymore. He went from being a perfect being to totally corrupted in his thinking, probably pretty quickly. I don't think this took a long time. So pride and envy are the first recorded sins of the Bible. If you think about it, this was, this was before Adam and Eve sinned. We know this. Because the serpent appeared to them in the Garden of Eden, and the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He had, he had already, this had already happened prior to Adam, Adam and Eve um, sinning. Okay, so this is the first recorded sin in the Bible that I can, that I can ascertain. Just a little side note, they're kind of interesting. This is why envy and pride are so dangerous, and the love of money, mainly because they blind you to the obvious truth. He was blinded. Just like blindness in part has happened to the Jew. Well, hold on. What was the root core of their sin? Well, it says for envy, they wanted to crucify Jesus. Envy. It's the same thing, it's the same thing Satan was doing. He envied and wanted to be like the Most High. So this envy thing is incredibly important that we stay away from it. Because look what it can do to you. It's not just some little thing, oh, you know, this or that. It's very, very important. Mainly because they blind you to obvious truth when you're an envious person. Now, I believe pride in particular is the most dangerous sin there is because of the blindness it causes and of the great potential to take people to hell. You see, someone who is proud doesn't see their pride. Quite the contrary. Most people who are proud think that they're basically good people and are relying on their respective good works to get to, to get them wherever they're trying to go in the afterlife. You hear this from a lot. Well, I'm basically a good person. I don't think God would send me to hell. He's a loving God. Are you willing to bet your soul on that? Well, I'm basically a good person. I, I, I go to my... Um, uh, I go to the Christmas presentation once a year. I go, to, I go to Mass once a year at Christmas. Midnight Mass. And uh, is that like Midnight Madness at the fair, anyway? I, I don't know. I, just, I always wonder if they two are related. Uh, you'd be better off going to Midnight Madness than Midnight Mass. Sorry, a little humor there. Um, and, you know, they go to their Ishtar service, their Ishtar sunrise service, so they can really be good pagans. And, you know, they give a little bit to the Salvation Army. And, uh, like in my mom's case, she'll give to Planned Parenthood, just so that, you know, they can kill babies. And they think that makes them a good person, this type of thing. Um, you know... Just twisted. Not by works of righteousness are we saved, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for you are saved by grace. What grace? The grace of God. 
Grace of Jesus Christ. For you are saved by grace through faith. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. For you are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. We don't get saved through our own works. Through keeping the seven sacraments. Or the Sabbath. Or doing whatever you are going to do. It's a gift you either freely receive. Or you freely reject. Bottom line. If, you, if thou wilt confess thy mouth, with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay, so that's just a little... But the Bible says that for we are all together as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So our best day, done apart from Jesus Christ, is a filthy rag in God's sight. That's just the way he views it. That's Isaiah 64, 6. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6. So these are things that we need to bear in mind um, in regard to the Bible. So a lot of these people think they're basically good people. They're relying on their respective good works to get them you know, wherever they're going in the afterlife. But see, works will never get you to heaven. It's not going to happen. The reason that pride is so dangerous is because, let's take a murderer for instance. A murderer knows he's a murderer. A thief knows he's a thief. But a proud person cannot see their pride. They can't see it. You see it all over. You, I mean, most people in most of their respective religions are relying on their respective false apostate religion in order to get them to wherever they're trying to go. Whether they call it nirvana, or paradise, or heaven, or whatever. They're relying on their respective works in order to get them there. That's pride. Plain and simple. So, 99.9% .9 of all people are operating in it, it is the main reason why most people are going to drop into the pit of hell. It's the main reason why most people reject Jesus Christ. I don't know why they would want it. Isn't it easier this way? Isn't it a better... That's what the Bible refers to as. It's a better way. It's a better covenant. A better covenant than the law we were, the Jews were under. Isn't it like an infinitely better deal? Like a free gift that you either freely receive or freely reject? You know, I just don't understand it. But people are so full of pride that they're willing to go to hell rather than freely receive that free gift from Jesus Christ. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But that's how bound up people are in pride. And I believe pride in and of itself will take more people to hell than any other sin that, that, is ever, that we ever commit. And these people are blinded. Unless they humble themselves and let God show them. See, what is the opposite of pride? If you think about it. Humility. Meekness before God. That's the opposite of pride. So, isn't that something we should try and strive to attain? Isn't that something that the Bible clearly mandates as a prerequisite for salvation? Didn't Jesus Christ said, unless you humble yourself as a little child, you shall not see the kingdom of God? Well, a little child can pretty much humble himself because he's not all full of pride most of the time. Of course, the kids nowadays in America, whew, pretty bad. So, if we go further with this, this is why 
the vast majority of organized religions, whether you call them Catholics, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, etc., even a lot of the, uh, the uh, so-called pseudo-Christian denominations of today's day and age, this would all apply to them equally. This is why the vast majority of these organized religions are designed by Satan. To take people to hell by getting them to trust in their good works. Isn't it the most brilliant plan that Satan ever devised? If you think about it. It's the main way people are going to plunge into the pit of hell. So is this something maybe we should be praying about? I, I think so. I really do. Because considering this is the main tool of Satan to take people to hell, which is the most important thing that any of us will face in this life, lifetime, either heaven or hell. What, what choice are you going to make? Okay. I think it's pretty important. If these man-made religions can get these people to trust in their own good works, what happens is it fills these very same people with this blinding pride. Hey, I'm a good Hindu. Oh, isn't he a holy one? Oh, isn't that monk holy? Isn't that nun? It's all false religion. It's all a lie from the pit of hell. It's all an abomination in the sight of God. God says, I will share my glory with no one. One of my main prayers is that many people would get saved through the body of Christ as present and that His name be glorified. No glory. The Bible says no flesh will glory in His presence. Let God have all the glory. Okay? Humble yourself. The Bible says, um, to, to this man will I look, to him that is of a meek and a contrite, and also would mean woman, absolutely. But to them that are of a meek and a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Now what does that also imply? The fear of God. This is another thing that's very important to God. Now, what is a byproduct of the fear of God? Humility and meekness. Pray for it in your life. Well, I don't really have any fear. Well, you better pray for it. And if you're reading the King James Bible, there's a lot of scary stuff in there. The Bible says to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what it says in the New Testament. It says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all the things that are coming upon this earth. The Bible talks about people that have, that have removed... Um, uh, words out of the Bible. It's the last, basically the second to last verse in the Bible, in Revelation. It says that they will have their name blotted out of the book of life. They've taken away from the words of the book of this prophecy. Oh, well that can't be. Well, I'm sorry, but the Bible says it can happen. also says in Revelation 3, it says, I will not take out of your name out of the, out of the book of life. Well, it implies that if you don't, if you're not an overcomer, you will have your name take, I'm sorry, but the Bible says this. I can't say I can be totally dogmatic and explain every single bit of this to you in, in, in minute detail. Because the Bible also says that we see through a glass, but darkly. The, the point is, is why don't you just err on the side of safety? Okay? So, if these respective religions can fill these very same people, can get these people to trust in their good works which fills these very same people with blinding pride. Now, think about this. Like Catholics, and their spirits associated with this too, because every religion has their own list of demonic spirits that start to get footholds in your life and ultimately probably possess most of these people. 
they end up having a family, they instill these same values into their kids, and they're bound for hell just as well. So it's a big perpetual satanic cycle. Which in turn, what this does when these people do this, it, it seals their fate in hell, if they don't get saved. So let's move on further. Matthew 27, verse 19. Going back to, uh, this is with Jesus. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, now this is, this is basically um, in regard to Pilate, okay? Matthew 27, verse 19. Let me, let me get there myself. I've got it in my notes, but I want to make sure I'm right on this verse. Matthew 27, verse 19. Okay, so Matthew 27, verse 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, this is Pilate here, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. This is Pilate's wife pleading with Pilate, saying, Don't have anything to do with this just man. Doesn't sound like she's condemning him to me. Okay? Then verse 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now, the root of the problem here, obviously, were the chief priests and the elders. But guess what? The multitude went along with it. The multitude of the Jews did. So, they made a free will decision to do this. So, if we go further... This was the first, this could be considered the first rejection at the time of Jesus. Now I know there was many other times that he was rejected, okay? But this is an official rejection of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're asking for a murderer as opposed to Jesus Christ, who was sinless. Okay, who was their Lord and Savior, and they're they're asking him to be destroyed and killed. Let's see here. We go further. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? So this is basically his second offer. Okay? And then it says, And they said Barabbas. So this implies the multitude said Barabbas and the chief priests. So again, this is the second rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, What's ironic here is they embrace Barabbas, which is a Barabbas's name actually means son of the father, <laughs> but he's a false son of the father. Jesus Christ was the true son of the father. Father in heaven. Barabbas's name actually means quote son of the father. Isn't that ironic? Did you know that? But he's a false son. So they had the false son of the father, and they had the true son of the father. What did the multitude want? What did the Jews and the elders want? They wanted the false one. Isn't that ironic? Boy, boy, that's ironic. So if we go further, verse 27, Pilate said unto him, 
What shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? They said unto him, let him be crucified. Third rejection. I mean, Pilate's trying to give him every opportunity to not do this. He knows it's wrong. This was something, though, that they had the option of. The Jewish people had the option in regard to this because they could release, you know, this one person. It was this tradition, evidently, on this particular day. And he's trying to give them every opportunity to not do this. But it's ironic. But the world will always ask for the sinner. And not the Savior. If you think about it. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the spirit of the world here. The spirit of the devil. They're always going to ask for the sinner. Not the Savior. The Bible says in Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're calling good evil and evil good. They're wanting a murderer to be saved and the Savior of the world to be crucified. That's crazy. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and his heart departeth from the Lord. And In other words, these people were really making... Um, flesh their arm. And they're trusting in men. They're trusting in the chief priests and the things. I mean, they got to be responsible for their own decisions, but um, this is what's happening here. So, Pilate's question, what shall I then do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Now, it's ironic, but this is a question we all have to decide. Okay, and that was verse 22. Pilate saith, saith unto them, what shall I then do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? That's a decision we all have to decide. If you think about it. Just as we have to judge what we will do with Jesus. I mean, Pilate's decision settled his own eternal destiny destiny, and so will ours. This reminds me of what uh, evangelist Melvin Sisson would, would often say. And he would, I'm quoting from him. He says, Jesus will not kick the door down to your heart. Okay, Either you freely receive him or you freely reject him. He stands at the door and knocks, but he's not going to kick the door in. Where does it say he stands at the door and knocks? That's in Revelation chapter 3. In re- reference to the Laodicean church era. Um, where in Revelation 3.20 it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It doesn't stand, say, Behold, I stand at the door and kick it in. And force him to eat with He doesn't do that. Okay, Jesus gives everybody free will choice. So if we go further, moving along to Matthew 27, verse 23, and the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? Because this is the third time they've said, you know, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Destroy Jesus. Okay, those are the three responses. What evil hath he done? Pilate's saying. But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. Fourth rejection. Four times already they've rejected rejected him. Verse um, 24. When Pilate saw that he could, he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, meaning a big, gigantic ruckus, okay, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. 
Well, I'm not saying God agrees with him, but I'm saying that he calls Jesus Christ a just person. And he tried, you know, to do this. He tried to avert this. But they wouldn't have it. Pilate can try to proclaim his own innocence, but that is not his right or duty, if you really think about it. Jesus, only Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, can proclaim our innocence or guilt. So it's imperative that we have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to ourselves through salvation, through his free gift of salvation, ultimately to avoid the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment. Not the judgment seat of Christ, but the great white throne judgment. So, verse 25, Then answered all the people and said, Now this was their answer, um, when it says, when Pilate, in verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but he rather, but rather tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Verse 25. Then answered all the people, and said, His blood be on us and our children. They asked for the blood of Jesus Christ in an extremely negative way, and I don't mean the blood applied to their souls to save them. They asked for themselves and their race to be guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ right there. In other words, these responses are getting more emphatic. It wasn't enough to say, we want the blood of this innocent man to be upon us. We want it to be upon us and our children. In other words, subsequent generations. What does John Hagee do with this? How does he explain this stuff away? He ignores it. He has to. He has to ignore this. It's the only way he could do it. This was the fifth rejection. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end it here for the sake of being... No, I'm, I'm sorry, end part one. For the sake of being able to get this on a, uh, a CD. Uh, because I've been told that the CDs uh, only hold 75 minutes. And we're just about at 75 minutes right now. So let's go to part two. And we'll pick up from there.